we started in a world where climate change was just something talked about by a handful of scientists to now being pretty much the fundamental defining issue of our generation. That is my brother, James Alston, and this is my Find Your Feet podcast. I bring this podcast to you to share the stories of inspiring individuals, to help us all to learn, lean in, step up, and really to be the change that we wish to see in the world. At the end of the day, what I really hope is that we're all inspired and that we're here to find our feet. So today's conversation is really on topic with that, and uh, I bring to you a conversation with my brother so that we can really get behind the scenes of climate change. My brother's been working in the industry of sustainable technology for the last 15 years, and since 2016, he has been the managing director and founder of New Energy Ventures. New Energy Ventures is a locally run business that strives to help other businesses to strategize, analyze, innovate, differentiate, design, deliver, and to grow their new energy projects or ventures, really to give them a leading edge in the business world as climate change fast approaches us. But whilst, you know, my brother has all that expertise, what I really wanted to do was bring climate change down to our level, to get behind the scenes of so many of the technologies and the issues that are facing us, and really to have like a simpler conversation about what can we do. So from electric cars to solar, from nutrition and soil science, you know, we delved into quite a few different angles, but I hope that today gives you a little bit of a heads up on what the issue is and what we can do about it. But before we lean into the conversation with James, I really wanted to bring to your attention just a few things. As you'll be aware, I'm the founding director of my own business, Find Your Feet Australia. And there's so many angles to what we do, but at the end of the day, we're here for tourism, to also bring to you products that are built to last for all your wild adventures and some coaching advice and strategies that you can implement into your lifestyle. So with the Find Your Feet tours, we use trail running to explore not just the far-reaching corners of the world, but also ourselves and the journey we are each on. Our 2020 tours, and 2019 for that matter, are all but sold out. However, we do have a couple of places left on our Find Your Feet tour to Chamonix in France, a Find Your Feet tour to the French Pyrenees, and as you know, that one is very close to my heart, and also one place remaining on our Find Your Feet inaugural and exploratory tour to the mountains of Bulgaria. So if you'd like to join us, we would love to have you jump across to www.findyourfeettours.com.au and as you think about your journey and perhaps perhaps you need a little bit of a helping hand on uh, dreaming big and implementing your big goals and dreams I would love to help you out and there's a lot of resources available on my website from my trail running guidebook to training planners my blog and past podcast episodes don't forget that that resource is sitting there waiting for you. So jump across to my website, www.hannyalston.com.au. And uh, on that, you will also find all the show notes for all of our podcast episodes and a place where you can sign up to my newsletter so that you can get articles and advice, tips and tricks all into your email inbox. 
And finally, the Find Your Feet store and our team down here in Hobart who drive both the Hobart store and our online store. It's an incredible resource for you and I'm absolutely indebted to them as they do the work to allow me to step out and to deliver these free podcasts to you. So all my listeners can access a 20% discount off their first order with us and you'll get free express shipping all over Australia. So when you get to the checkout, just put in the word podcast, all capital letters, podcast, and you can access that 20% discount. All right, it's time to tap into the knowledge and inspiration of my brother, James. So shall we do it together? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's do it. I really wanted to steal your time away from your young family because I've been trying to, not trying to, but I just have found myself on a trajectory of really trying to understand the issues that we have with climate change and from lots of different angles. So for example, recently I had um, Paolo D'Souza and he is a specialist whose background is in science and space science. He had rovers on Mars. And more recently he's um, been really looking into the issue that we have with honeybees and a huge amount of like the challenges that we're seeing with them is to do around climate change and agricultural production mm. and i'm hoping also to have some more insights into like the impact that climate change is actually going to have on australia from a climatic perspective but i thought in summary of all of that that what i'd love to delve into is more an understanding around like the impacts that or the, the i guess positive actions that we can take as individuals mm. but also an understanding of what's happening from a, like a larger scale business perspective particularly in the energy sector because we're just mm. seeing so much growth now around the electric vehicle movements and batteries and solar and wind and i yep. think a lot of us get a bit lost in what's going on so yeah. i bring you in <laughs> <laughs> um so maybe to begin with i was just wondering if you could tell me a little bit about your core business because um, obviously you're running your own business as well now yeah um yeah so my name's james alston um hanny's my sister <laughs> um and uh, i run a business called new energy ventures and i have been doing that for about um, three years um and um, before I've got basically a long history of working in new energy and energy efficiency and um, and then also being quite interested in politics but I, that's very private for me um, I'm sort of active but behind the scenes um, and my sort of career started with engineering and um, studied engineering at University of Tasmania and then um, worked for Siemens um, for uh, six and a half years, first in Australia and then in, in Germany. Um, and that was all in sort of marketing and strategy around energy efficiency and energy management. And then spent some time working for a retailer in London, um, being their demand side energy specialist. And then for a, a electricity distributor, that's the poles and wires business, um, uh, d d developing up their, what they called emerging opportunities um, business strategy. And then um, out of that, I started um, New Energy Ventures and basically New Energy Ventures is a management consultancy we specialize in new energy which means solar batteries electric vehicles 
um, energy retail. And, so sustainable energy. And it's not so much sustainable. Um, so a battery intrinsically isn't sustainable. Yeah, that was right. going to be one of my things. So um, solar energy is definitely sustainable. Batteries are not, but batteries can, you know, help more um, intermittent um, renewable sources be introduced into a grid um, and they're quite effective at doing that for a whole range of reasons but um, so yeah so we there is a sustain undeniably a sustainable flavor to what we do but it's not what we lead with mm-hmm. um, our business is about helping decision makers so that's people um, CFOs CEOs um, uh, very senior people in businesses um, who have quite significant sort of um, energy needs um, get their heads around the modern complexities of the energy landscape which is as you put in your intro incredibly complex (laughs) and um, once upon a time we had an energy system where we built big coal-fired power stations and gas-fired power stations and in other parts of the world nuclear power stations and then we um, put all of that energy into huge big transmission lines that you'll see running across the countryside and then the energy would be distributed through the cities and people would buy that energy and in today's energy system we have um, it's been completely turned on its head. So now, rather than energy all flowing downhill from from the power stations, um, individuals are able to um, generate their own electricity through mm. um, predominantly solar. Well, we um, do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right in this building, we're doing this in my home. Yeah. Like we have solar on the roof. Yeah. Exactly, and yeah. we're about to install solar on our home as well. Um, I know it sounds a little weird that I don't have solar yet, but I've only just moved into my newly renovated home, so I'm using that as my excuse. Um, so yeah, so and then with all of that comes this massive opportunity for businesses of all sizes to get their heads around um, new energy and how that could, they can help that incorporate that into their core business. So so where do you think where <coughs> we are on the scale of what's actually happening in that movement towards, I guess it's more like a decentralization of the, of the energy model. Is that correct? Like, yes. So if, if we were saying like 100 is we're completely there and zero is we haven't even started that movement, like where would you put us on that scale? Um, depends on which state you look at, but on if you look at Australia overall, um, about twenty percent of homes, twenty percent of a quarter of homes have rooftop solar. That's pretty good. Um, yeah, it is pretty good. Yeah. Um, the sort of estimates put that that we probably get to about um, sixty to seventy percent as like the the limit. Okay. So, from a homes perspective, we're about a third of the way through. So hang on, so why would only 60% of homes be able to get to that point before we reach a limit? Because not all homes are suitable for solar for a range okay. of reasons. Right. Yeah. yeah, because they're facing the wrong they're way. They're facing the wrong way or... trees or... Exactly, they've been yeah. shaded okay. or, um, you know, it's an right. apartment building or whatever it is. So it's not necessarily to do with the, the technology as in where we're feeding our energy into it. It's just literally just home placement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Hmm. So, so as we before we sort of get into the delves of the deep stuff, um, yep. I guess I just really wanted to know what 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 drives you every day. Like, what gets you out of bed, and what makes you go, "This is this is the area I want to work in." Um, it's a really good question. Um, what drives me? Um, undeniably, it is impact. <laughs> um, so, uh, um, I. I'm massively concerned about climate change. Um, it consumes an enormous amount of my thinking time. Um, it 
terrifies me on so many levels. Um, terrifies me just on its basic level of the changes that I see, even in my lifetime, mm. um, in you know, in our little um, state of Tasmania. You know, when we were growing up, we would see snow on the mountain mm-hmm. every week, right? And mm-hmm. and it would stay there for a week or two, at, uh, for at least one part of the winter. Now, now we might get snow, you know. Um, maybe every fortnight or every three weeks and it stays for a couple of days and Um, we grew up on a farm and we would almost inevitably have one or more snow days a year where we couldn't get to school living at 300 meters i reckon they've even seen snow this year yeah yeah for sure and so like even in our like we are the generation the people that like of my age and your age and we started in a world where it was kind of like climate change was just something talked about by a handful of scientists Mm -hmm. to now being like pretty much the fundamental defining issue of our generation and um so yeah so i think from my perspective like that just the the sort of the visible effects that we're seeing that is very much Mm -hmm. present in my mind the second thing that's very much present in my mind is just how um how inactive we are as uh um you know our societies have become just so um stuck in actually fixing any of the issues Mm. um and that has got to do with an enormous range of very complicated issues but principally just a massive disengagement in our um democratic systems and in, in in politics generally by the population and as a result of that, um, people are kind of just leaving it to uh, our governments just to kind of resolve the problem. Mm. Well, our governments don't feel any pressure to, to make any changes and, um, and, as, and are typically being guided a lot by industry um, and, and the more powerful industries. And as a result, depending on where you live in the world, kind of defines the politics that you have. So if you live in Australia and the US, um, as we do, and or in Saudi Arabia, where your fossil fuel industries are incredibly strong, then your politics is determined by those industries. Yeah. If you live in other parts of the world, like, um, I don't know, Norway or Sweden or um, where, you know, other industries are um, uh, stronger, um, then your politics are defined. If you live in Costa Rica, where majority of your energy comes from hydro um, and forestry, um, as you're put on, um, then that becomes the way that you've managed to focus. So you're seeing countries that um, who have their own natural kind of resources and um and sort of you know economic benefits leaning in towards um the future and trying to fix the problem mm. and then you're seeing um countries like australia where we are highly dependent on coal and gas and other um fossil fuels leaning towards the past yeah that and was actually going to be my question because i was going <coughs> to say if like fixing the challenges of climate change and solving the issues around it from the language that you speak and what and the knowledge in the area that you work in if it was like an olympic sport right what would be the country that would be or the countries that would be on the podium in terms of what's happening and what they're doing about the issue versus where would australia finish in the field oh australia's pretty well dead last um (laughs) and um and and we're even worse than last like we we have um we have a government and large portions of um sort of um, our population that just either don't believe in climate change or don't believe in the urgency of climate change and don't actually want to change anything to fix the problem. 
Um, so yeah, and and so it's actually worse than coming last. It's mm. they're actually working against the change, um, which is terrifying. Um, given that you know our scientists are telling us that we basically have like you know two years <laughs> to to act and to start turning the ship, and um, and we constantly seeing governments around the world um, just turning turning the wrong way. So. Um, yeah, so who would come first? Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, there, um, I mean, lots of European countries, obviously. Um, mm. So, but for all di- all sorts of different reasons. Um, so Germany, Germany would be up there. Um, you know, they they have the Energiewender, which is um, the energy transition. They are actively working to produce a, uh, a um, society which is powered by renewables. Um, they've committed to get out of, getting out of um, coal. Um, they've committed to, you know, um, I think it's like 2030 or something like that. They've um, committed to having no um, sales of um, internal combustion engine vehicles. Um, so, you know, they're amazingly forward-thinking um, forward thinking country. But even within Australia, like, we have some examples of... Um, of world-leading stuff um Mm. sort of the irony of the whole thing is while there is very large portions of society which don't want anything to happen there are also very large portions of society that get it (laughs) and that are making incredible leaps and bounds and kind of just sort of just forgetting about the political rhetoric that's going on um which is kind of why a business like mine can exist in a Mm. country like australia um and and those are the people i mean i regularly talk to people who i'm sure um would vote for people that don't believe in climate change um but they understand that there's many aspects of the stuff that we can do that just makes simple financial sense yeah so it doesn't have to be coming from like solving climate change as their motivation it could be just literally coming from pennies in the pocket exactly um or not just pennies like uh, you know we're working on business models that are that will return um will make returns for the investors of anywhere between um, sort of 10 at the low end and, and 15 is sort of like a, a sort of a minimum cutoff for a lot of the ideas that we have up to around 40% IRRs. Now, if you compare that to what you would get sitting putting your money in a bank account, which is like one and a half to 2%, like we're not talking chump change. We're talking really serious, highly profitable businesses. Mm. And and that's what gets, that's what's getting, that's what's getting the movement. So what makes me excited and what makes me hopeful so after talking about the doom and gloom is that there are many things that we can do quite simple, straightforward things that we can do that kind of give us more time to solve these other more serious issues that we have, um, mm. around the transition, um, around like, you know, transitioning all coal workers into new jobs, right. Mm. Is, is a really fundamental and serious issue that, basically is getting no attention in Australia. Um, but we, we can't do that while we're still begging for a coal industry. We have to make the transition to go from, okay, we can't burn coal, we can't dig up coal. Well, so what are we gonna do with these people? How are we gonna employ them? And we can't fix that. We can't even address that issue until we've addressed the issue of, we need to make the transition. So yeah, yeah, yeah. in the meantime, we can just do the stuff we can do. <laughs> and that's like a, it's a really, really bold 
statement and I'm like 100% on board. It's like, yeah, just tell me what to do. But as you make that statement, I can see that you're really talking about the we as in two two real areas, I mean, three areas. You've got the individual, the you and I, the two yep. choices we make. Yep. You have the business sector, so the private sector, and then yep. you have the political movers and shakers. Yeah, that's a good way is of putting it. Is that correct? Out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and I think where we're at is that we have a um, you know sixty what was the last last election the last polls like something like two thirds so sixty six percent of people in Australia thought that climate change was one of the defining um, like their their sort of biggest concern going into that election. Mm. We still voted in a government which. Um, well, depending on the day, either denies climate change or is refusing to do anything substantive about it. But that's 66%. <coughs> do you know how much, what percentage of that are like our, our generation, like the younger generation? Oh, that's everyone. So that was a that was a broad poll yeah, of all Yeah, so that's what I'm wondering is like out of that, where do you, what do you think our generation, um, where do, do, where oh, do you Oh, so it's, it's a definite sliding scale. So yeah. the younger you are, the more concerned you are about climate yeah, change. Yeah. Um, but you kind of have to be. I mean, like... You're thinking about like we're going to be on the planet ourselves, hopefully for at least another fifty plus years. Yeah. You've got we've got young kids, or you've got young kids who are going to be growing up and being on this planet for a hell of a lot longer than that. Like it does make you wonder, kind of like, I guess what it's going to be like. So my next question to you is like, we're on this bell curve of like early adopters versus people who are like, yeah, okay, I'm on board, versus like people who are dragging their heels, kicking and screaming and not wanting to make change. Like, where do you think we're sitting on the bell curve? Because obviously we need enough early adopters to get this momentum in. Um, yeah, we're not quite there in terms of the critical mass that we need. Um, I think I think it's uh, – I'll answer this to, in two, two ways. So there is – there is a lot of people that kind of care, um, you know, given that, you know, 66% of two thirds of people um, saw it as a major issue in the last election. So there's, there's, there's no doubt that there's a lot of people that care out there. That care can translate into sort of um, two different actions. Action A is the way that you vote and therefore the people that then represent our country. Action B is the um, the individual decisions that you make as an indi- um, on a daily basis um, that affect your own individual footprint. Um, we're definitely losing on on A and, and we're not losing because people don't care, it's because people are scared. Mm. Um, people are scared about the changes that might happen and they should be like you know we are talking about the fundamental changing of our society from being a principally fossil fuel based um, growth based economies to um, a sustainable um, economy with an unknown sort of additional economic outcome right so like are we going to be able to continue to grow our economies in, in 50 years' time? Like some economists say, well, yes, we'll transition to a more sustainable model and then growth will be measured in different ways. Um, I personally doubt it. <laughs> um, we live on a finite resource planet um, and at some point, um, like we, all the, the ecological debt and whatnot that we are creating for ourselves is going to catch up with us. Mm. And um, so, you know, we will see um, 
no doubt a, a massive, massive reset of our systems. And then out of that reset, we will see the new systems prevail. Exactly. Because like the biggest, biggest <coughs> principle of change um, is pain. Yeah. And we see that when you, like I work in the coaching, so it's completely different to you, but change often comes from a place of pain, you know, where some, like even my client this morning gets to a point at 50 where she's like, I can't live with this discomfort, this pain any longer. And it's no different whether you're looking at her as an individual or you're looking at the government political system trying to create change. Like when they get enough pain in the tank, mm. that's when they will hope you'd hope it would come before that yeah i mean it has but, to and, th and this is one of the challenges that we have is that like climate change is like it's they talk about it as being the frog boiling the pot that the frog doesn't realize it's it's dying until it's dead and it doesn't even realize it's sitting in hot water until it's dead and and it, the, the problem is kind of similar here in the sense that the carbon that we're putting into the air today will still be causing effects in 30 years' time and will still build upon itself in the 30 years' time. And we have all these um, positive feedback loops that, that mean that um, we can get to a so-called tipping point, um, which is when we basically put enough carbon dioxide and methane and other um, carbon, uh, other um, global warming gases into gases. greenhouse gases into the air, and um, at some point, um, the result of that means that we melt the polar ice caps. Well, if we melt the polar ice caps, then we don't have as much sun reflected back into this into space, and therefore the heat gets absorbed into the ground, and then that's a positive feedback loop. Another positive feedback loop is if we thaw the permafrost in the Arctic. Um, which is currently um, has all this captured methane sitting in it. All of that methane, um, which depending on who you talk to, has a carbon effect of 30 to 60 times um, as much um, you know greenhouse gas warming ability as CO2. If that gets released into the into the air, then we're also ending up with positive. Yeah, or and you burn your rainforests, or you burn the peat soils in the Siberia, peat, peat or soils, peat yeah. soils in Tasmania. Like yeah, the I mean, there's all these all these really terrifying. Um, positive feedback loops that if we trigger one of these and we just don't even know like we could have already done it like you know we're so close to that tipping point now that it could have already happened and we we don't even know that it's happened um mm. and and so the, the problem is not there's not enough pain for people you actually have to intellectualize the pain yeah. to actually realize that we have to change so you know we have to keep on explaining to people just how serious this problem is yeah. and and why it is reasonable for um to, to declare a climate emergency and that it's that it is reasonable that there's groups called the extinction rebellion establishing themselves and 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 being a, a real presence in our society because it's real it's mm. not it's not um it's not something that we can walk away from um so so back to your point in terms of the tipping point where we were where before. So we've got this kind of like political tip, tipping point that we have to reach, which is going to take some time. Um, we've I thought we'd got there 10 years ago, but clearly we hadn't, and it's going to take us longer. Um, and then there's the individual actions that we can do. And, um, and I think that there's a lot of very well-meaning people all focusing on individual actions, but they don't count for a lot <coughs> on their own, and we really need one to go with the other mm. we need the we need the political um political movement and one of the things that people should should be careful about is that 
in um, kind of empowering themselves um, because you've got to feel empowered in this um, pretty grim situation in some way that you don't you don't empower yourself and put yourself into a sense of um, uh, like that you've kind of by fixing your own individual issues you've done your bit so yeah Yeah. now I can sort of forget about the problem and um, and uh, continue my European holidays that that doesn't work (laughs) Um, we have to we have to fix the the issues on the three levels you described before we have to fix the the individual level we have to get people individually recognizing the contributions that they can make and so they do that we have to fix the business level we have to transition businesses away from fossil fuels and get them comfortable with making investments that are sustainable and we have to fix our governments and um, so you can have a lot of very noisy shouty people that are all vegan and um, ride their bikes all the time it's simply not enough Mm. Um, we need all the people that care deeply to step up a level and to get political and we need people who um, who don't, who kind of aren't on that journey, but recognise the problem to start, then making their own personal contributions, and um, and it's by that sort of incremental change for all of us. That Completely, and wherever you are on that spectrum, whether you're in small business, you're trying to shake the bigger businesses by the choices that you make, or the exactly you know, the impact you can have. If you're in the bigger businesses, you're trying to move and shake the political sector because you have more sway power. Like it's like we all. I guess it's like all stepping up, isn't it? It is, and I kind of think of it as like throwing a rock into a pond, right? Yeah. So, you know, the rock in itself hitting the pond, and you know, small splash, right? But you end up with this ripple out, and and you want those ripples to be as big and, yeah. and wide as possible, and you want as many people start to be... bloody skipping the rocks across the water. People. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I guess and, bit, and, yeah. And like I keep, I mean, I have look. I've spent enough time in this space that I have enough people come and ask me about this, like you are today around what can they do and um and it kind of depends on the where you are in the journey if you haven't started yet there's lots of simple things that you can do as an individual that can have an impact if you are on the journey and you want to you've got to start thinking about 10 times multiplier impacts right yeah. so you've got to be you've got to think about like how can i impact how can i how can i remove the carbon of 10 people not just my own carbon yeah um because we have that many people working against us on the other side that don't yeah. get it. That, yeah. are, that especially in a place like Australia, like we need that that momentum. We need to push hard, and we need that momentum to actually fix the problem. And and that's daunting, right? That's really and it's and I imagine there'll be people out there listening, going, "Oh little shit!" Like I don't really want to be out there marching. Well, you don't necessarily need to be marching, but need to you need to like change has to happen, and you have to somehow find the willpower and the motivation to do it um, yeah see for me like i i guess i started <coughs> freaking out the most about climate change when i went up into the fire landscapes in 2015 after the really large fires that hit our alpine area and like for those people who don't know tasmania particularly well but our alpine environments are just not meant to burn like they're soggy wet plains a lot mm, of them and we exactly. were seeing you know, we were seeing fire rip through sphagnum bogs and, you know, tear up the pencil pines, which have never seen fire since Gondwana years. And yeah. so it, it was a big deal. And I came away just feeling completely disheartened. And I remember walking along with Dan Bruin, who was um, a wilderness photographer, and Rob Blakers as well. Um, and I think they could sense, like, I guess the overwhelming sense of despair and, like, 
how small I felt in that moment thinking like what the hell can I do as an individual and it was actually Rob who put his hand on my back and he said honey at some point you have to believe that there are all these good people out there doing good things and eventually we will all come together we just have to hope it's in time and that was that was for me the kickstart that was the motivation but I came home and I had to really sit down and be like what changes can I make and there were the ones that I could do on the on the small scale level like from what I eat, how I commute, like I ride an e-bike now, back then I was riding my bike, um, solar panels on the roof, like just, I guess, the smallest changes that I could make. But then I knew that, like, I had to step up. And for me, starting the podcast was actually my first step up. Or my, mm. And it was my, I knew, like, I was the kid that sucked in drama. I was the kid that was hiding the back of the hall if there was dance or singing or anything to do with that and so being on a podcast was probably overcoming one of my greatest fears but mm. I was like these voices such as yours need to be heard and that's my ripple effect is trying to get these messages yeah and I think <laughs> and I think that and the, and the like the transition you described is a really good one right like you kind of dealt with your own personal carbon footprint first you um, empower yourself you empower yourself yeah you realize yeah. the realize the changes that you can make and like and there, and there is some really solid good home transitions that you can make um uh you're a plant-based diet person um i'm not uh, i try to eat um what's known as a planetary diet which is um, the majority of food that you eat is vegetarian, um, but you don't necessarily have to go berserk and um, become a vegan or, or plant-based. Um, uh, that, for me, is sort of personally my um, my sort of limit. Um, but um, that your the food and the things that you consume are represent about two thirds of your carbon footprint. So mm. by um, you know buying local, um, exactly by it's on that buying scale. what you need. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I think that just by just by you know eating less beef. I, I mean, I eat no beef. I eat wallaby, um, and that has an enormous carbon difference to someone that would. Uh, that would I've eat that. Like, talked about it quite a bit with people, <coughs> and I also talk about it even when people are starting out in exercise. Like you don't go from sitting on the couch and no exercise to going and running a marathon. You make like incremental changes, and as quickly as you as you can as you would as you can adapt to it so like yeah. even a five percent change is a change and the thing about change is as soon as you start making change it kind of sets like a, a ball rolling you get exactly like powered. yeah you don't need to go and chaining yourself to a bulldozer yeah. and joining the extinction rebellion if you yeah. if you haven't even kind of made the first incremental steps so um, what would be like if i want to i want to work up the three tiers and in the time that we have together but the first level is i want to know if you were listening to this podcast and you were at the beginning of your journey, what would be the changes that you would begin to make in your family household? Yeah. So, like, first one, as we just discussed, is your food and yeah. the stuff that you consume. So, like, trying to um, change your diet um, just in small little ways. So start off by um going without beef for a month and seeing how you go can and i drop a fact in there i yeah. read on there's this awesome website called project drawdown yes, so if you yes. haven't seen it we'll put the link in the show notes but um if cattle were their own nation they would be the third biggest contributor to greenhouse gases well there you go so holy <laughs> so i mean just choosing not to not to eat beef is a massive one i mean you also dairy i i'm i'm guilty of i just cannot 
stop eating cheese. I'm addicted to cheese. Cheese but is addictive. <laughs> it is as addictive as cocaine. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So um, I struggle with that. I make my contribution by not eating beef. Um, but that's a big one. Um, buying a worm farm, um, you know, food waste is is a massive, massive contributor. Um, and um, methane um, is generated from food waste when it goes in, when your food goes into a landfill and it breaks down in the absence of oxygen it produces um, through the um, uh, anaerobic um, production of, of uh, so the anaerobic breakdown, which means that it produces methane. So putting your food waste into a worm farm means that um, it's breaking down in the presence of oxygen and, and the worms eat it and produce, it, produce lovely fertiliser for your garden. And you can have a worm farm pretty much anywhere. You can, mm. you can even have one. Um, it's like it's even good to like... Um, have a worm farm on an apartment balcony and then put the castings, um, the dirt that comes, and just putting it, put it in a local park or even into the bin. Like even sending that to the to landfill is better than sending the food waste to the yeah, landfill. Yeah, so true. Yeah. So like that's that's a simple one. The next the next biggest one by far is um, your transport, um, particularly the vehicle that you drive. Um, so... Um, I have you know. so many questions. <laughs> yeah, we could spend a As whole. Let's like... let's uh, let's get to that one in a second. But okay, like, right. so um, so uh, reducing to one car, um, it would be a fantastic step. That might not be possible for many people um, trying to use public transport where you can. But buying an electric bike has been the most amazing, liberating. It thing is life changing. It is completely life changing, yeah. and um, and I think for anyone who hasn't ridden an electric bike on your podcast, I mean, you have a pretty active um, following, I'd imagine, of active people. Um, and um, I would thoroughly encourage everyone to go and find a friend that has one, or go and just test ride one, or just try it, test ride it, just ride it up. A hill just and be prepared see how... to go with like six grand in your back pocket <laughs> and don't try the best one try to yeah and and like that six grand might seem like a lot of money at the time it's when you're putting car. a putting exactly it's you compare that against the price of your second car i'm sure that you'll be ahead and the upkeep and the maintenance on them but... and and also look 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 broadly as well like our first electric bike was a cargo bike um which you know, could we could, we drove our um, you know little kid around. I had him in the had him in the cargo bike from from six months, and um, used to take him to daycare and you know go on go on little outings yeah. with him, and 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 it's extraordinarily liberating. Um, so that's if, you, a, if you're not a bike rider, I also got an electric scooter, so a moped, um, yeah. which has just been also so much fun. I mean, would be really good in a place where there's no wallabies and slightly yeah. flatter. But yeah, it's this. There are really cool options out there now. Yeah, and then if you, and even on the car levels, like um, you know, explore electric cars as your so sexual car. We'll come back to this one, but right. like right. there is a there is a um, a lot of um, pretty amazing options that have just entered the market in the last you know even the last six months. So we'll we'll talk about that in a second. So that I mean, so that so yeah, so your food is the first one. Your transportation is the second one. Um, try and avoid your European holidays. Go to New Zealand instead. Um, and um, if you do have to fly, at least carbon offset. Unfortunately, I have to fly nearly every week for business. So <clears throat> I try and carbon offset as much as I can. Can I drop a fact in there that if you virgin carbon offset, you actually are supporting um, Tasmania at the moment. So it goes to land care in Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah, so, which is really cool. Private um, sector too. And then, um, and then the final big one is the stuff that you can do at home. Um, so for us living here in Tasmania, our carbon footprints from home um, are pretty small by virtue of the fact that the majority of our energy comes from hydro. If you're listening from 
um, Victoria, New South Wales, or Queensland. A um, bit of bad news for you: or most of your power comes from coal, mm-hmm. um, and so the the impacts that you have at home are pretty significant. Um, and a lot of the stuff that you can do at home is is pretty straightforward. And and many of the benefits of from a from a carbon perspective actually have many other um, sort of quality of life benefits as well such as draft proofing so if you spend you know um, a few hundred dollars getting a professional to come around and you know professionally draft proof your house you'll just have less breeze blowing through your house it'll be easier to heat it'll feel more comfortable to live in um and um and you'll save a a lot of carbon and it's a relatively straightforward thing to do and a lot of money yeah Yeah. and there's a lot of money going just flying out literally out of cracks in your home um so the average home in australia has if you add up all those little cracks and you turn that into one big hole um it's a hole something like um a meter wide by 600 meter tall so that's a pretty big hole um so just fixing draft proofing the home is actually and would you really go as far as like just looking re-looking at like insulation as well yeah insulation sort of the next step so draft proofing is the first one that um the next step is is insulation probably so putting more insulation into your um, roof if you haven't already done it um if you have cavities so if you have um if you have a weatherboard as an example um you'll have cavities in behind there if that hasn't, hasn't been insulated you can get insulation pumped into those cavities um that'll also really improve the um any draftiness that you might have as well since weatherboard houses are very drafty um and then so those are sort of those are sort of some of the basics and then you get to the, some of the more serious ones like solar um Heating options. Heating options. So solar is, you're probably looking at a, um, you know, between a five and $7,000 investment. Um, but will pay itself back in probably five or six years. Um, it's pretty much now is probably the best time ever in Australia to buy solar. Um, so, and the reason for that is that the, um, the subsidy for solar will continually decrease until 2030. Um, um, and, uh, um, but the price of like the actual um, installation costs have come down so massively in the last um, the last ten years even that there's not a lot of fat left to squeeze out of it. Like the, the solar installers have got um, installing solar on roofs down to such a fine art yeah. now that it's it's very hard for the costs to come down yeah, anymore. Right. Okay. So when I was first looking at solar when I started my career. Um, solar was um, $10 a watt Um, uh, that might seem like a sort of what does that mean well just in relative terms we went from $10 a watt um, to we're now seeing solar being installed um, at around between $60 and a dollar um, a watt so 60 cents and a dollar so a 10 times or more yeah 10 to 15 times reduction um, in cost cost. so um, yeah, to get any further reductions is going to be quite challenging. And is this talking about then solar that you're feeding into the grid and offsetting your cost of your bill? Excuse my leg lay language, but this is where my <clears throat> expertise definitely ends. But Or is it like looking at storing it in batteries and using it when you need it within your home? Like, That's a really good question. So, um, so the average size of a solar system being installed in Australia right now is about five kilowatts. Um, the majority of that energy, about 70% of that energy, will be exported back to the grid by the average family. Um, so you're actually, most people are putting more solar on their roof than they, than they need. need. 
the reason why people are doing that is because um, not so much in Tassie, um, but in other parts of the country, you can get quite generous feed-in tariffs. So you can get, um, you know, in some states, you can get 20 cents um, uh, for the energy that you feed back into the grid. And um, and as a result of that, it means that the whole thing kind of makes makes economic sense to do to put such a large system in one of the things that you need to do though when you when you put solar on is change your energy habits as well like that is the other major step that a lot of people forget about so um you have all this excess energy that you're pushing back into the grid well if you use that energy that's still economically better than selling it so you need to put your dishwasher on in the middle of the day you need to put on your your washing and your dishwasher and um you your uh, clothes dryer, everything that is, um, everything is like a discretionary, discretional energy use needs to happen in the middle of the day when the solar is happening. Um, the next level of that is if you have electric hot water, if you have gas hot water, rip it out when you have the chance and put in electric. Um, but if you put in a heat pump hot water system um, and you use that um, you make sure that that system runs when the sun is shining, then you're effectively putting free energy into your hot, hot water, water system, um, which is working like a battery. It's just storing the energy in, in as in thermal hot. energy in hot water rather than storing it as, as um, chemical. For you to use in then in your heat pump or cooling system? No, just in your showers and okay, bath and okay. yeah. So yeah. that that is a, I mean, we're doing increasingly at New Energy Ventures, we're exploring that more and more um, as a potential measure for um, for even probably developers to implement in there. So instead of batteries? Instead of batteries. So batteries... Because batteries, like this is my thing, isn't it? We've all been taught that batteries aren't exactly very good. Like it takes a lot to make a battery. It does take a lot to make a battery. Um, you still, if you are storing renewable energy with your battery you still are going to have a carbon benefit so for um it's not as nowhere near what you'd get for every unit of energy you put in to um for putting in for for the output of energy from solar but um you do get a carbon benefit um still by um avoided use of other um carbon fuels um the big the thing I think the thing that's really important for your listeners to know about batteries is that batteries for the home are just simply not there yet. That's, um, that was going to be my question. Thank <laughs> so, um, so they, where solar generates value, right? So solar is you put it on the roof, sun hits it and, you know, and magic happens. Electricity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Electricity comes from your solar panels and it is generating value every day. It's yeah. up there. All that battery's doing is storing value. It's not generating value, it's just storing. So in that process of storing value, there has to be a reason why you do that. It would be though for like people who just, it is not feasible for them to get the washing machine on in the middle of the day because they're- But even then, like when you, when you have solar, you need to think about the battery as being, sorry, the grid as being your battery. So you put the energy into the grid and then you get the energy back out at another time. Like that's not how it's working. Um, from a from a physical perspective but from a from a practical perspective that's what's happening and and so the the decision that like there's like a little rule of thumb around batteries which is that batteries don't really make sense today unless you have a 30 cents differential between the cost of the energy that you put 
into the um, battery and the value that you're pulling it out at. And that that's a bit nebulous. Um, sorry yeah, for my management yeah. consulting brain. Yeah. But basically the, the simpler way to think about that is um, right now I'm buying you know, energy from the grid at my home. Um, Which comes at, from a coal yeah, power station. Well, yeah, well, anywhere in a country, but like it might be, say, 25 cents. So the cost of the energy, that you're, the value of the energy that you're not, when you're not buying power from the grid, your solar is worth 25 cents. Now, if I sell it into the grid, I might get, um, in Tassie, I get eight and a half cents, but in other parts of the country, you might go 20 cents. So the differential there is only five cents. You need that differential to be about 30 cents. To be to make make you know make it a, uh, make it worthwhile to own a battery. Um, now there is lots of other reasons why businesses, um, for example, would want to own a battery, um, or if you lived in an area where you have really bad reliability in your grid and you want more reliability in your grid, then it makes more sense. Um, all of the all of the sort of conversation that we have around batteries at, at New Energy Ventures is all about building what's called uh, a... So, like, say a, host, a new hospital <coughs> is being built and they need to make sure that the oxygen pumps never, ever turn off in the hospital. They might have batteries. So they might have, like, a solar system and they could have batteries and it would give them reliability of the... Like, yeah, but the batteries kind of... In a lot of, of, most of these cases, like, the batteries need to kind of stack up in their own right. Like, actually, solar storage is a terrible use of a battery. Okay. <laughs> like, there's a lot of other great uses for a battery um from a from a technical perspective from a um an environmental perspective simply just export your energy back to the grid but use that energy at home when you can so okay. shifting all your all your usage um into the middle of the day when the sun is shining um leads to much much better outcomes than um buying a battery and storing that energy okay cool awesome all right i've got it all right, I, before we get to vehicles, because I want to go there, but um, I just wondered if you could try and help me catch up on the recycling issue now in Australia with um, normal good recycling that we've all known mm. about for years and also the soft plastic recycling because it's got quite murky in the last month or so even especially. Yeah. Look I, yeah. look, I might not be the best person to talk to about recycling, but I will give it my, my sort of two cents worth. Um, we we have a terrible recycling industry in Australia comparative to other parts of the world. So if you live in Japan, for example, um, you'll have six different recycling days where you put your recycling out. And Japan realised in the 1980s that um, that they just they simply didn't have enough natural resources of their own, so that their way of mining is recycling. They bring in you know, resources from other parts of the world um, to um, in the form of soft drinks or food tins or tins or whatever it is, and then they take those resources and they use those resources and they recycle those resources and they put those back into their economy and that becomes their resource, um, the way that they get their own resources. Um, because Australia is has an abundance of resources, um, it is simply cheaper for us to just dig shit out of the ground and, you know, create something new. Um, and, and that is a travesty. Um, and, uh, and a lot of it is also to do with the fact that we just simply don't have the right, um, regulatory frameworks for our whole recycling industry to mm. work, work, work properly. So an example of that is, um, you know, up until very recently we were shipping all of our waste to China and China would, um, 
do the recycling because it was cheaper for us to just simply send it to China and have Chinese um, people go through our waste and sort it. That it just didn't make sense to improve the quality of our of our um, recycling waste, and it didn't make sense to set up any local um, you know secondary processing facilities here in Australia um, because it was just simply cheaper to send it offshore. Well, that has to change, right? So we have to. We have to ban the export, and fortunately, Scott Morrison um, has floated that we do ban the export of it. Um, we then have to, like, once we've done that, then there's possibly motivation to start improving the quality of our recycling because we have some of the worst recycling quality in the world. Um, and what I mean by that is people don't know how to recycle properly, so they throw in all sorts of crap into their mm. um, into their recycling. So soft plastics is a um, great example. Um, you commonly see, um, if you walk through on bin day, people throwing plastic bags into there. Well, they think they can recycle them. We well, can't recycle them into in a... Um, in your curbside recycling, you have to take them to the supermarket and and, and recycle them there. And then gosh knows what happens when they get there. But well, yeah, but no, but at least th- th- those actually um, do quite well. They get turned into fence posts and, and garden okay. furniture and all sorts of stuff. So it's actually it's, it's worth doing that. Um, but if you put a plastic bag, particularly a strong one, into your curbside recycling and go through a recycling machine, it can break the machine. So um, so you need to like you need to basically understand what your local council can take yeah. and recycle properly. And then um, if we start getting all the systems right, so we start needing to have better, um, you know, we do our secretary processing in Australia, that secretary processing plant needs better quality waste. Therefore, councils are then incentivized to try and educate their communities yeah. about what constitutes as good recycling practice um then you know we're heading, we're heading it's strange because like i've been going to europe since i was you know 15 so like 17 18 years and the fascinating thing is that ever since i started traveling there there was a recycling system set up where you take your recycling down to the local store and you sort it and you put it in the machines and it spits out money it's like an incentivized system for the individual as well, which means yeah. that you don't have garbage trucks driving up and down the road. And like what we have had happen here the other night is a huge windstorm comes through, blows all the recycling bins over, and you get rubbish entering into the waterway yeah. systems. Like, yeah. just it's interesting how every country, I guess, does it differently. But no, but that's really helpful. So basically, we should have faith that Australia might be moving in the right direction in regards oh, to recycling. I think it's a bit strong. Um, <laughs> Like, we need to continue putting pressure on our governments. And, I, I mean, frankly, I mean, the the sheer lack of any progress um, in environmental policies in the last, um, you know, last 10 years, basically in the, um, you know, since our Gillard government, um, has just, I mean, we're just going backwards. I mean, we talk, keep talking about cutting regulation. Cutting, regu- like, we need more regulation, <laughs> not less. Like, um, it, it all sounds nice to cut regulation and remove hurdles for business. Those hurdles for business are there for very, very good reasons. Like, we, there are lots of examples of stuff that just does not work without government intervention. And um, because businesses are principally driven to make a profit. So we have a minimum wage because if there was no minimum wage, businesses for for menial tasks 
um, where there is uh, an abundance of people that can do that task would simply drive the wage of, for the person doing that task to the bare minimum that yeah. they could do. And that is an example of where businesses should not be let make not be allowed to make the decisions of how to run our country and we need our governments to make those decisions and we need our governments to grow some balls and fix lots of the issues well the governments are only going to and the politicians are only going to grow balls if their constituents keep on putting pressure on them to change these issues so we need the political engagement of people to 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 make that all happen yeah and the scary thing is that the brains like yours you know that could potentially move into the political sphere and have the knowledge and willingness to change just the political system is just just not an enticing place to be like you feel like if you go in there you're not going to have as much leverage as you can have on the outside so we keep ending up in a bit of a spiral of like not really having the people in the high places that would need to be there yeah I think we'd save that for a whole separate podcast. Topic. <laughs> All right. So can I can I can I can I go towards the vehicles? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I've I've got three questions. Um, petrol versus diesel. Uh, hybrid versus electric. And then what happens when you get your hybrid or electric car home and need to charge it? Okay. So broadly, let's, All right, let's start. Five, let's start with petrol minutes, versus diesel. It's a, it's a huge, huge topic. Okay, petrol versus diesel. Um, uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Um, if you buy a diesel, um, you typically will have a more efficient car. Um, the sort of mechanics of a diesel engine means that they're more efficient, which means that you, um, you know, emit less carbon. Um, the downside of a diesel is that they produce a whole stack of nasty gases, which um, uh, NOx gases and various others um, which create acid rain, which cause asthma, um, lots of early deaths and in many parts of the world people are, um, uh, countries are now banning um, or, or moving to ban diesels. So London, for example, is moving to ban diesels from its city. So, um, i.e. Volkswagen scandal? i.e. Volkswagen yeah. scandal. And cool. um, if you want to know more about this, there's a really amazing... Um, uh, documentary on netflix um dirty money and the first episode of that um is all about that volkswagen scandal and, and it's and it's not just volkswagen um people point to volkswagen but it's it's all the car manufacturers mm. you simply can't produce a diesel engine at the right price at the right efficiency with the right power um that doesn't produce these these toxic emissions um i own a diesel vehicle i know you own a diesel vehicle mm -hmm. i simply cannot wait to get rid of it <laughs> same so yeah. this is this is why this question sits so heavily yeah. in my mind so petrol um yes you can find a more a relatively efficient petrol car i'd probably if i had to make the choice today i probably would buy a petrol car even though from a carbon perspective it's it's probably worse um so then comes the question of hybrid versus electric um the problem with hybrid is you end up with two very complicated, technically complicated systems in your car, right? So just a internal combustion engine and all the stuff that hangs off that internal combustion engine is a complicated beast as it is. Um, and they break down. Um, they, you know, I was complaining with my wife this morning about how um, we have a, what is it now, a 12-year-old um, car, um, a Citroen. Um, we've spent... 
um, four and a half grand putting a, a, a new second-hand gearbox in it this year. A, a new gearbox would have been more than the value of the car. Um, we will have to soon do the timing belt. We will soon have to put new brakes in it. And um, so you have like all these mechanical problems and cars, um, especially ones coming from Europe, are only designed to live about 10 years. And the reason that is, is because when you reach 10 years in Europe, you suddenly get walloped with all these um, stiff um, tariffs and whatnot. Um, and people are then forced to buy new vehicles. So of course, manufacturers don't build them to last very long. So what ha- sorry, but on that then, what happens to all those old cars? They get when recycled. They're... Okay. Yeah. Right. So... So I, so um, so mechanic anything that's mechanically complex means that it's going to have a lot of maintenance. It means it can break down. If you add a hybrid system to that, it's taking that mechanically complex system and then adding more mechanically complex systems to that already mechanically complex system. So you now you have a mechanical system, an electrical system, which can break down in all sorts of myriad of ways. Now they are more efficient and they will be. Um, they will be fantastic cars to own and run, um, uh, but um, you know, simply it is better to try and make the leap the whole way to electrical. Um, but 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 on that, if you were someone that had to do long haul driving, say like we do with our work, would that's where the electric car probably can't win against a hybrid because a hybrid can give you the extra range without charging. Uh, yeah, for yeah, but that that has been challenged pretty substantially now. Right. Um, okay. And uh, we're we're in this sort of tipping point now. So um, so an example of a, a potential electric car that you can buy, which you can um, you know, which is hybrid, um, a thing called a public plug-in hybrid, um, is the um, Mitsubishi Outlander P PHEV, meaning plug plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, um, and that will give you about um, 20 to 40 so k's of around. So what's the hybrid in there? Does it still have petrol? It still has petrol. So it has right. a two liter petrol engine and then it has a 40 k um, electric only range. So so for the majority of your driving, if you're driving around town, um, you can drive an electric um, power for most of that driving. And then if you have to drive to, um, you know, lawn system, which occasionally you have to, um, then um, you could switch, you over could switch it over. So, um, so what's the plug-in bit? Like, sorry, but it wouldn't all electric cars have to be plugged in? No. So, uh, like an early model um, Toyota Prius um, is not plug-in. So that has an electric motor and battery inside it, but it's powered by the petrol engine. So the advantage of that is um, that... Um, you can drive um, uh, down a hill um, in a in a hybrid electric vehicle like the Prius, and as you're driving downhill, it's generating engine, it's generating power off the momentum of the vehicle yeah. as you're braking. Um, thing called regenerative braking, and it's putting that electricity back into the car. So then, when you drive up the hill on the other side, you're using that energy that you gathered going down, and you're putting it in going but back you'd up. still need to put some petrol in it you have to put it, petrol in it yeah so um so if you are doing very long haul trips in a car like that it's typically not very good but if you're doing round town up and down driving um you can get incredible mileage out of those vehicles um okay so, as opposed to some of the new vehicles that are coming out where you can charge them at home or at the car park or at the exactly so like if we look at the the spectrum so you've got a pure um, internal combustion engine, mm-hmm. so it's just what m- most people drive in today. 
which you can get in petrol or diesel form. You can then go from that to just a hybrid electric, which is like a Toyota Prius. So mm-hmm. it has um, a battery, and um, but it can't drive on its battery. It just mm-hmm. It's just there to kind of like store a bit of energy as you're braking into the lights and then release that energy as you're taking off again. And that improves some efficiency. Then you go from that to a plug-in electric hybrid vehicle, which means that you can plug it in at home or at work or at the supermarket, and you can use that energy to then drive around on electric only. And then once you run out of battery, then it'll kick into its petrol mode and you can keep on driving for, you know, forever. Um, or as long as you've got petrol in the tank. Then you go from that to a full electric vehicle. And there's a little grey area in between, but we'll just overlook that. Um, and that full electric vehicle, up until quite recently, um, unless you have you know $150,000 to go and buy a Tesla, um, has been something which you would have to only um, be driving a relatively modest distance um, with that vehicle to actually be able to get it around. Um, so something like a Nissan, you know, first generation Nissan Leaf had a 120 kilometer range. Um, so you, that would be fine for for most people's driving needs mm. for 90% of the time. Um, but it's not going to take you, you know, you're not going to drive to Queensland in that vehicle, right? Yeah. So, um, but that's all changing. <laughs> and that is changing at staggering speeds. Um, so you can now buy in Australia, there's um, a bunch of new vehicles which have just been released. So the Hyundai Kona is an example, um, the third generation Nissan Leaf. Um, you can now buy with a 400 kilometer range. Queen, yeah, okay. So you can quite comfortably drive from Hobart to Launceston and then go and plug it in at a fast charger and just sit it there for an hour and then you'll be able to drive back to, to Hobart again. Um, now, like, like the whole thing, the whole um, experience of buying an electric car is going to be a big transition for most people. What a lot of people, when they're thinking of electric vehicles, jump to the immediate thing that you do, which is like, what happens when I go on my really long drive? Well, how often do you really make those long journeys? Like, it's worth just sitting and thinking about. I mean, for you, Han, you're driving all over the country, so it's a bit of a different topic. Oops, I eat plants. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but for the average for the average person, I mean, for our needs at home, we, we, you know, we make like one long trip to Derby every now and then, um, which is 400 Ks, but that might happen maybe three or four times a year. And then for the majority of our driving, um, daily driving distances would be well under 100 kilometers. So, you know, we really don't need... And there's so many strategies. Like, I think it is just, like, overcoming the mental block because, you know, there are things like, okay, we could swap car with mum. I could swap with you. Exactly. There's so many... Oh, Maybe so think about, options. yeah, sharing like one large, large car amongst a group of families to yeah. the, when you do need to go on that long trip or don't have the large car and just hire a large car for that, you know, for that one time in a blue moon that you need a large car. Um, you know, th- there must be many, many ways of skinning a car. Yeah. We're all driving around in these. I mean, you just look at, look at today's vehicle fleet. You're driving around. Just everyone has these huge SUVs. Yeah. And and frankly, like when when do you really need 
that. Um, for most people who's driving, they don't. And if you had one vehicle shared between a bunch of families, that would be perfectly sufficient. So my question then is, if you were getting a vehicle to upgrade your 12-year-old one now, where where on that spectrum from petrol to electric would you... Would oh, you I mean... I'm an early early mover into stuff, obviously, but um, I'm I'm definitely going full electric. Full uh, electric. Yeah, yeah, it's just no. It's a total. I mean, it's not a complete no-brainer. Um, you, I mean, these vehicles aren't cheap. You, um, the vehicle that I'm looking at is about sixty thousand um, dollars. I'm quite interested in a thing called a Kia e Niro, um, which I think is sort of is about the size of a Toyota RAV4 or a little bit smaller um, and it's a good good family car. It'll be our only vehicle. Um, it's got a 400 kilometer range um, and um, and so it, it could potentially get me to Derby in one, one hit. Okay. But in saying that, like there's all these fast charging stations all popping up all yeah, over the country. It's just massive, massive investment. Tassie's government's just in, just committed to putting some in even on the West Coast Tassie, which if you've been there is kind of like... <clears throat> middle of nowhere. Know, middle of nowhere. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the shift is happening. I guess my final question on vehicles... Sorry for all the people listening who aren't hotheads, and we're not really, but it is an interesting topic, I think, and one that I think a lot of people are beginning to think about. Um, my final question on it really is, like, if someone is sort of borderline, maybe need to update the car, but not really, like, would you recommend just waiting just a tiny bit longer? Like, is the technology going to shift a huge amount? Yeah, and definitely. down in price? Definitely, definitely. Like, um like we keep on talking about it at home and and i'm and look i'm got my finger on the pulse i reckon like within two years we will see um probably like an extra 50 to 100 percent more vehicle models on the road so a lot more choice um of different vehicles that you can have um and the prices will come down massively okay. um and so it is worth it is worth if if you are ready to make that step now just a few little other tips about evs one is um you know most modern evs rather than having like two thousand or four thousand moving parts which is what a standard car has they have between 20 and 30 moving parts so massive massive change in terms of mechanical potential for mechanical failure so your maintenance costs will go through the floor um so you know a nissan leaf um has a two um, you can spend two hundred dollars um a year on services um, which I don't know, frankly, don't know what they would do, dust the batteries or something, um, versus, <laughs> you know, um, taking your car to, you know, your Subaru or whatever it is to performance autos and spending maybe 1200 a year on your, on your mechanical, just your simple, basic mechanical checks. So that's the first big benefit. The second big benefit is um, your petrol or your fuel costs. So going from buying petrol or diesel to buying electric um, energy, even if you're paying like 25 or 30 cents will be a quarter of what you're paying in petrol. So massive, massive saving uh, with that there as well. Um, and then, so from a com combination of those savings, even though you're paying more upfront for yeah. buying an electric car, your running costs are going to go down massively. So that's when it's really worth thinking about um, going onto a lease or some other thing. So if you want to try and stage it out so you don't have like a massive upfront cost, yeah. like thinking about financing for that vehicle. Because I think a lot of people probably one of the barriers has been like, well, if I've got to pay for petrol and I have to pay for electricity, like, but you're saying it is cheaper. The electricity it's is massively yeah. cheaper. Yeah. Massively cheaper. Okay. The, the, the other big benefit, and this is like the, the whole sort of charging thing, 
is you can charge at home. You don't have yeah, to drive to a petrol station. Yeah, <laughs> like, and, and if you look at like the early adopters and like, there's just tons of research out there now about like how people have changed their driving habits and their, and, and their fueling habits as a result of owning an electric vehicle. Um, 80% of charging or more, like 80 to 90% of charging happens at home, which means that you get home, you plug it in, the next morning you get into the car, it's got a full tank of fuel. Like uh, you can just yeah. get on and do it. Um, yeah. And which is completely different to the way that we drive our vehicles now. Now we, why we go, we have to think we have to go to a petrol station if we run out of fuel. So we have to like plan to be around a petrol station at that time. And, 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 you know, we drive in and, and then that, that transaction all happens quite quickly, which is good. But, um, um, and we won't be able to mimic that transaction in, in the near future with electric Insane. vehicles. Yeah. But the, the, the flip side of that is we don't need to have that transaction. We don't need to have fast charging in that, nature for the majority of our charging simply because we'll be able to charge at home and if you have solar on your roof and you're pushing lots of energy into the grid and you can leave your car at home you can charge your car with free energy from the yeah. sun and the and the final thing i would say on all of this is like as um paolo said to me the other day when we were talking about organic food versus you know like why would you it's hard to justify spending the $5.95 to buy your organic carrots when you can buy them for 99 cents for the same amount in the supermarket. And he was saying, yeah, but the great thing about it is like, if you see organic carrots being grown at no matter what cost, it's just nice to know that there are organic farmers still out there. Mm. And then by supporting them with the dollar makes it easier for them to run their business. It brings the price of the carrots down. And like, and so I guess what we're saying here is like, you're voting with your dollar with this kind of thing as well. Like if you're on board with supporting the movement of electric vehicles, you're going to be helping that industry bring its cost. Yeah. Down. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I agree with that argument in many ways, and that's something that's happened in Australia. Like, we have some of the cheapest rooftop solar in the world simply because we built an industry that learned how to do solar cheaply, and we had lots of people who spent very large amounts of money in the early days um, who sort of paved the way for us to all now have cheap solar. Um, electric vehicles slightly different. We can really thank the Chinese <laughs> um, and, and the Norwegians um, for for you know the massive massive reductions in in um in electric vehicle um costs and also the massive range increases that we're seeing so that you know going from the 120k nissan leafs to the 400k plus nissan leafs that we're seeing now is all driven by um global market okay. forces so all right okay all right my head is full but um i want to begin to wrap so i guess my I know this. I know this is like a really horrendous question to say as a wrap, but um, give me a briefest go at it. Um, I guess I'm just curious to see to know what you believe are going to be the major shifts in the next five to ten years in in your in your world, in the world that you work in, as we move towards trying to address climate change. Now, I know five to ten years is not the time spectrum we need to be working on, but I'm curious if you project forward, what do you think the landscape is going to be looking like? Uh, sorry, in which in which area do you mean? In in the energy sector. Oh, in the energy as, sector. As in the world you're working in. Oh, right. In in yeah, in, in new energy world, um, electric vehicles. Um, <laughs> everywhere. Everyone. I mean, we'll just see a, a staggering change. I mean, it's not going to be everywhere, everyone. It's but we're going to see um, sort of up to probably twenty percent of electric vehicles within ten years. Um, up within ten years, up to twenty percent of electric ele vehicles on the road will be electric. Sorry. Um, 
so that and but with that just massive change right so um you know today we're at like one percent or something ridiculous so that's a huge growth and we'll see huge changes um so that that i think is one of the the staggering ones um the the next one will be um like the 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 whole decentralization of energy system like um and uh, that journey is going to continue and continue to snowball um you know we've got governments out there that don't want that transition to happen but simply the train has left the station it's it's happening it makes economic sense people are making tons of money drive off it. it faster <laughs> exactly drive it faster yeah. um and, and and it could go faster and 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 uh, i mean just go and have a look at how how much um how much solar went in 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 last year was we put in more solar in last year than all previous years combined um so you know we're, we're just the potential for for change is massive um and so with and with that is going to be a whole host of really challenging problems um our grid is simply not ready for it yeah um contrary to popular belief that was going so, to be one of my questions <laughs> but i know i was running out of time but <laughs> yeah but i i mean but this is i think one of the things uh, so like if i can try and sort of wrap this up in sort of in the best way i can the transition needs to happen fast it is already happening fast but it needs to go faster the conversations that we're having today at the political levels that we need them to happen are simply not happening in a way that is that is helpful and is and is actually paving the way i mean we don't need subsidy for many of these different technologies we just need some quite fundamental problems with the way that our grid and our, the regulations for our um for our energy system to be changed to be made ready for the full transition but we're still having this conversation about building new coal-fired power stations or god forbid building nuclear power stations in australia which would be a whole separate podcast i mean it's just mind-blowingly stupid of our politicians to think that that is going to happen and that and it's not because we have climate change it's just the simple economic reality that these things don't make financial sense anymore mm. and it is cheaper to build solar and to build wind and to put in batteries than it is to build a new coal-fired power station so why would you do it um there is just no logical sense and that's just coal triple that logic when you come to nuclear so so that whole conversation is just is so painful for people working in the energy industry because they're ju it's just not not born out of reality of what's going on so we're going to see this transition it needs to happen fast enough but we need to have that conversation if we have that conversation then that transition will happen faster if we don't have that conversation then we are going to continue to see major major problems with our energy system to snowball and get worse and worse and worse and worse and um and yeah probably we will have blackouts um and we probably will have problems that that would be solved but they would be solved and they won't be caused by renewables they will be caused by governments not acting and fixing the fundamental things that putting band-aids over them just well it's not even it's not even band-aids it's even it's even worse than that it's kind of like it's like taking leeches and and putting leeches on people to try and fix their medical problems it's kind of that backwards that um that the sort of conversations that that are happening right now so we need to fix those issues um 
But in amongst all of that, we are just going to see spectacular technical transitions um, in ways that most people just cannot comprehend. Um, and, um, you know, in 10 years' time, autonomous vehicles will no doubt be a real and live thing and we'll have many examples of autonomous vehicles. I mean, we already have autonomous vehicles. Like, Teslas can drive themselves on highways. Um, so, but within 10 years, like, we should see you know, robo taxis and things like that. And that like that's science fiction stuff for a lot of people. But mm. that's real. That's mm. actually happening. That's where all the transition is moving towards. And then in the, all of that stuff, then we have all these other transitions that occur. So once you have robo taxis, then it's actually become so cheap to take a robo taxi that you don't need to own your own car because it's cheaper just to to use someone else's for that short little trip. So I think like the, so these these transitions are, are massive. Um and um, we are going to, is definitely worth getting on that journey today and supporting mm-hmm. that journey as best as you can, um, in whatever way that you feel like you can. Oh. <laughs> All right. You stole my question and I'm, I'm loving it. Like that to me just like resonates so strongly and it's interesting because we, we don't actually like brother, sister, but we don't get a huge amount of time together, but it's like mm. really cool to sit down on a, on a conversation like this and just realize like there's so much to learn from me, from you. I'm sure if it was the other way around, it'd be mm. the other way around, but um, it's, I'm really like, I'm so grateful to have had time with mm. you. I really genuinely mean that where I can just fully understand and also get a bit more of a sense about what, I guess the world you move in and, and what what you do. We haven't talked about it from the business level, even to be honest, into the political level in the way that we could. But I, my final question for you is like, I'm really curious to know what the future is for like James, like you at the core of this, you can take it either way. You can take it in terms of where you're going with your business or as a person or both. But um, in terms of your, your values, your, your goals, your focus, like I guess like what's your future? Mm, um, yeah. For me, it, it's where we started. It's it's impact. Um, for me, you know, I'm one of those people that not only cares but has the privilege to actually do something about it. Mm. Um, you know, I've educated myself about this problem and all the solutions to it, and I've made a business out of um, educating others about how to do it. Um, from a business perspective, I'd like to grow my business. I want it to be hugely profitable. Um, and I don't mean that from a greedy perspective. I mean that if it's really profitable, it means I can hire more people and I can create bigger impact. Well, yeah, it means <laughs> if it's profitable, you're actually making change. Exactly. I'm, yeah. I'm, it's not just, I mean, that's, I think, I think there's kind of people when they think about sustainability, they think about dirty hippies, you know, um, and, but it's, it, it, it's not that like, it's, it's like these, there's so much stuff that we can do, which just fundamentally makes economic sense that, um, that it can just happen. And so a business like mine, uh, um, you know, which charges ludicrous management consulting fees can exist because there's all that value out there. Um, and so the, so that for me, like it's a, my biggest number one is, is impact, um, and then the second one is um, is probably like um, work life balance and and mm. and um, 
you know, spending lots of time with my son and, and new little daughter and my wife um, and my family and, um, and nurturing them and, um, you know, giving particularly my children the best hope that they can have in what is a pretty scary unknown future. Mm. Um, so that I think for me is probably my, um, my second biggest focus. And then my third biggest focus is just having fun. Um, (laughs) and look, we're not here to just all sit and dwell and doom and gloom. Like, you know, of, of all the challenges that we have in this world, like, um, we live in an amazing place, like go and enjoy the world and be part of it go and ski if you want to ski go and mountain bike go and run go and be in nature and enjoy it um and for me like that that's just so important it was it's where you recharge it. the batteries <laughs> it's where you recharge the batteries no pun intended yeah yeah but that's you're right because that's that's the motto that i've come to live by is as many of the listeners will know now but like be wilder is about doing the little things that you can do to empower yourself. And that's yes. primary and fun, fundamentally number one. Um, second step is play wilder so you continue to recharge the batteries and and find those places where you, when you're out there you find your strengths, you find your weaknesses and you also find your areas of impact, I believe. Mm. Um, because I think when you get those two down right, then you can really stretch yourself to perform wilder and for you you're doing that through through your business as well yeah. as your parenting um so, so i'll just say one last thing before i'm sure we need to wrap up but this is such a horrible complex problem climate change in general um and it's and there's just so many layers to it like you know it just it doesn't, no matter where you start it's 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 terrifying it's scary it's hard um distance yourself from it care without feeling um is really really important and there's going to be um i've got a friend who talks about it it's called the green wall like there is, is this real issue which um sort of in where it's sort of different to sport right so with sport you want to run a marathon you train really hard and then you go and run the marathon and you it doesn't matter whether you finish like in four hours, you finish in two hours, you still were successful in finishing that marathon, right? You Mm -hmm. still were, you still have a sense of achievement. Climate change is not like that. You won't have that sense of achievement. (laughs) We, We can't individually fix this problem. Like we can do individual actions to kind of make ourselves feel better, whether it being buying carbon offsets or whatever it is. But if you really, really care and you really, really want to make an impact, then you constantly got to keep going and keep slogging on in solving this horrific problem with people working in the other direction against you. So you've got to do that in an impassioned way. You need to care without feeling it because if you internalize, if you keep on reading about how terrible it is and you keep on internalizing that, um, all that doom and gloom, um, and you keep on putting all this energy into trying to fix the problem, but yet you can't fix it because no single person can fix this problem. You will burn out mm. and, and it will be tragic for some people who in those scenarios. So my biggest recommendation to your listeners hand is if you do care, care in an impassioned way, make all those changes that we all, all the things that we talked about, you know, be involved, get political if you need to, but do it in such a way that you don't necessarily bring the same passion to this problem as you would to a sport or to your work or to some other issue because you 
it will all really hurt. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And then it's about surrounding yourself around other people with that same ethos that you kind of like you're strong in numbers as well. So imagine Absolutely. for you in your working sector how important, as much as I hate the word networking, but I imagine how important it is to be networking, to be around people who you know maybe had a small win and you feed off that energy and together you're absolutely yeah yeah for me i did this course called uh, um, center for sustainability leadership and it was one of the most empowering courses i've ever done um simply because it had the most amazing other amazing people all caring about the same thing all caring about the environment um some it was about climate change other was about wilderness and whatever but everyone had this underlying care um and we're all able to look out for each other and, and care for each other. And, oh, man, it's, uh, all those people are still my friends today. I, yeah. you know, I regularly catch up with them. And I think it is like when you're the one in your own home making these choices, it's nice to kind of know that there are other people out there also leaning in and making choices. And that concept of leaning in has become one of my strongest catchphrases now to energise myself is like there are times when we're asking you to lean into the the discomfort of change or the challenge and there are times when you lean out and you go and play and you be outdoors and you recharge yep. and then you come back and you lean back in again and I guess that's what you're saying is like approach the issue with self-acceptance and self-compassion yes oh so important yeah. so so important um <laughs> and yeah. I think we both kind of have been to the <laughs> the tips of the iceberg where you don't want to go so exactly yeah and it's just not fun being on the brink um yeah and it's and it's worth it's worth learning those lessons without getting there yourself. Um, yeah. And and using other people's experience on that one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome! I am so grateful for the conversation. Thank you no so much. My pleasure. Okay.